this week in ill-fitting outfits. I think I just shrunk this t-shirt. Man, this neckline here is like, this is devastating. This is devastating. Let's just turn the hat backwards. You know, I'll tell you that, first of all, I have to do this whole episode whispering because everyone's sleeping downstairs, but I tell you that I have probably never walked into an episode with fewer things to say. So we might be staring down the barrel of like my worst episode ever, but who knows? Did this feels like a feels like a period of grieving. This feels like a period of grieving. Um I had two different coworkers this week. And these are like the people I feel very close to at work. Two different coworkers deal with like the death of a sibling in the last few days. And that's a weird one, you know? That's a weird one. It's like death of a parent. We have this, with death of a parent and death of a child, we have these really set sort of attitudes towards it like death of a parent is this profound freudian orphan like this earth-shattering orphan feeling um like when your last parent dies i don't know how many you start with but when the last one dies you're an orphan and everyone has to I mean, no, not everyone has to deal with that, but, but it's very universal and we, we, we have a, an attitude on that. And then when death of a child is this thing that's like not supposed to happen. And that's like what we see as the most earth shattering thing of all, you know, if one of your kids die, it's like, it's that thing that's not supposed to happen. You're supposed to outlive your children. But then death of a sibling is like, it's like you grew up together. It's almost like a little bit of a death of yourself. It's like a death of a... It's like a could-have-been-me kind of death. But, you know, when <clears throat> when people tell me things like that, it's like, God. I don't know. It really affected me, those two people saying that. And... and uh, yeah, they were obviously in kind of bad shape. And... Um, it somehow it puts everything in perspective death and god damn it we've been talking about death a lot in the last few episodes <laughs> it puts everything in perspective but when someone tells me that their fucking brother just died it's like it makes me feel like all my problems are so small and then at the same time it makes me feel worse about my small problems it makes me feel like Wow, there are real problems. Like, there are real sad, upsetting events out there. And I find my problems sad and upsetting. It's like, man, I need a lens wipe. Hold on. Six hundred lens wipes. <laughs>
I'm a prepper for all the most necessary stuff. I don't know, somehow it makes me even sadder about my small problems. My problem right now is that I'm, I think I'm deciding to, I think I'm deciding to break up with my friend Dr. Luke. And it's making me very, very sad. It's like, in a lot of ways, maybe he's my closest friend, just in a completely practical sense. I think he might be my closest friend because we talk pretty much every day. We talk on the phone. We do video calls. He lives in New Zealand. I live in America. We're texting. We send memes back and forth. And we commiserate about how fucking depressed we are about everything. And... And we talk about very, very real stuff. It's not like a superficial thing. But... <clears throat> We've been friends for like 12 years and there's just this thing of like how every four months we just have a huge fight and we don't talk for a bit and it makes me very upset. He ha he is a very close friend of mine so he knows how to make me really upset and I get really upset and then it just feels like this thing that I can't always have in my life for the rest of my life. And as of recently, this is probably just an illusion, but I feel like I've been trying to grow and like talk about it and like really figure out like, how do I push your, push your buttons? How do you push my buttons? And I want to talk about it and I want to learn about how to treat him so that he doesn't get so upset at me. And I would like for him to understand when he really, really hurts my feelings and says really fucked up shit to me. And how that hurts my feelings. But he, like, doesn't want to talk about it. And I don't, you know, maybe... And then he just says I'm a grudge holder. And I probably am, you know. And I'm not here to say whose fault it is. But I just think it's like, it's two people and we hurt each other's feelings. And I don't... I think I got to break up with him. And and it's like... And then we have this broy thing where it's like, for me to be cool... like. For me to win the argument, I should like be cool and pretend like it's nothing to me and it doesn't matter. Because that's what he always falls back on. He'll like say some things that really hurt my feelings and then I'll tell him that it hurts my feelings and then he'll be like, look bro, we're just friends on the internet. Like none of this fucking matters. This is not a real friendship. And I'm here to tell you that to me it was a real friendship. And ending it made me incredibly sad. It's making me incredibly sad. It just feels like a period of deep grief. It feels like a period of deep, profound grief. I miss my buddy. It's just so sad. And who am I going to ask for medical advice and then have them not respond and just make fun of me. <laughs> it's like that meme where liberals, extreme left liberals are like, defund the police. And then on Twitter, there's this funny meme tweet where people are like, 
dude, if we defund the police, who's going to show up four hours after the crime was committed and take some notes really sloppily on a notepad and then not do anything about it? Who's going who's gonna to do that? <laughs> it's such a funny tweet because it's kind of true. And that's a little bit how Dr. Luke's medical advice was. I would ask him about medical advice and he'd always... Um, just make fun of me for not already knowing the answer. It's like, bro, you don't understand anything about the immune system. It's like, no, I don't. I didn't go to med school. I, I literally don't. Uh, but then he'd always give me the real answer at the end, you know. And we... <clears throat> we upgraded ourselves in the health cult a lot. You know? used to be really, really unhealthy. And then over the years, we just did one thing after the other and just really got into salad and really stopped smoking and drinking and started exercising and really got in better shape. And then, yeah. And then now the last step of the health cult is to, to let go of toxic spiritual shit that's killing us. God, that's sad. Makes me sad as fuck. We would have these fights about like completely inane things. The most, the thing that comes to mind is how two years ago we had a fight about how. Where do I even begin? This was during the Donald Trump presidency. <laughs> and the liberal media was talking shit about Donald Trump. And Luke was really into Scott Adams, the cartoonist who <laughs> invented Dilbert. Fucking Dilbert. The, the three-panel cartoon about office life. Scott Adams later stopped making Dilbert and started making videos on talking about politics. And so anyway, the point was that Scott Adams always talked about something called the fine people hoax. Very fine people hoax. Because he meant that Scott Adams was of the opinion that it was a hoax that Donald Trump called Nazis very fine people. And it is true that if you say Donald Trump called Nazis very fine people, you're kind of paraphrasing him. Because if you go to the quote, blah, 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 when there were Nazis that that marched on Charlottesville. It was really a conglomerate of different extreme far-right groups. Some of them were, many of them were definitely self-proclaimed Nazis. And in this group of far-right, in this mass of far-right groups, Donald Trump spoke about it and said, there were very fine people on both sides. And then the news media was like, he just called Nazis very fine people. And in a sort of indirect way, he did. And then Scott Adams is really like, no, no, no. If you really parse the sentence, he didn't do it. He actually said Nazis. He actually denounced Nazis in the next sentence. And that's also true. And then Luke and me got in this argument about this where I was like, look, bro, there's a fucking more complex reading of this. And Luke is like, no, it's a fucking hoax. He didn't call them very fine people. And I said, yeah. He fucking called them very fine people. 
And we had like this massive argument about the wording, the transcript of a Donald Trump speech. And we had such a big fight about it that we didn't talk for four months afterwards. You know, about fucking politics. And Luke is not even a Trump supporter. He's just a nerd. He's just a logic nerd who like gets really autistic about detail shit. He doesn't even, yeah. He just gets annoyed with liberals. I don't know. And me, I'm over here like, no, but you know, the point is that, and honestly, I think that there's a much more interesting, like if you want to be a smart guy and really zoom in and really think deep thoughts about a fucking stupid ass paragraph of text from Trump, I think you should much more go in the direction of like, the like one of the insidious, evil, villainous things that Donald Trump does is that he always tries to eat the cake and have it too. He'll always like say something in one direction and then in the next sentence say the absolute opposite so that he's making everyone he wants to be like all these different opposing sides of his base everyone can find something they want to find in there and all of his enemies find something to be mad about because what he really said like emotionally what he said is like he looked those nazis in the eye and said you're very fine people. And then in the next sentence, he said, Nazis are despicable people. And it's like this hodgepodge of rambly, broken up, fragmented sentences where he, where he, it's like, you know, it's like the Bible where you just, you put everything in there. And the, the, and the fact that it's contradictory is a feature, not a bug, you know? That's more the direction I think you should go if you want to analyze the Trump thing. But, but, <clears throat> but Luke didn't listen to that and we got very, very mad at each other and then we didn't talk for months. And it's like, fuck, that's so sad. It's such a sad thing to be mad about. I don't know. And then other times we had these conversations where, I don't know. I was going to say that we had these conversations where I felt like we were coming together and I felt like he was like admitting that maybe it was like an expression of pain to disagree with me that hard and to do all that shit. And maybe he was like dealing with his own stuff. And, and I felt very comfortable saying that that's definitely true for me. That when I, you know, when I get in these fights, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's just like, it's just me expressing my pain, but but then we would always backslide into just expressing our pain earnestly and not, we would always get confused and identify with our own pain. Because that's the thing, right? You identify with your thoughts and you're inside of your thoughts and you you don't fall back and look at your thoughts from the outside, outside and you you have feelings and you think your feelings are you. And you don't fall back and you don't look at your feelings from the outside and realize that, like, I'm just being a squirrely little animal here. And somehow we get in this thing with each other where we just push each other's buttons and we turn into these reptilian brain little fighter squirrels. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart in two. Hopefully five years from now, we're both older people and we're friends again.
but I'm weary because what I was going to say about it is like when I say that I felt like we would figure it out and we would feel like we were admitting that we were yelling at each other because we were just expressing our own pain. What I was going to say about that, that it reminds me of is how my ex-wife would be super mean to me and say all this verbally abusive shit. And then we would have these moments of clarity where she would admit that like, I don't know what word to use. She would admit that like, Yes, I was in my own stuff and I shouldn't have said those things. And I was like being, she would admit that she had been very verbally abusive and that she'd been fucked up. And it felt like her admitting that felt like maybe we're getting somewhere, but we never got anywhere. You know, I've been thinking about that fucking, especially that, that thing is something I've been thinking about so much recently of how. Man, when it comes to the mind and trying to do therapy on yourself and do actual therapy and go to a therapist and like the stuff that's squishy, it's so easy to fool yourself into believing that you're making progress. Whereas in reality, God, you look at it all 15 years later and you're like, wow, I've been making the same mistake for 15 years and I've had a therapist for 15 years and I just like, I never get anywhere. It's just squishy. It's squishy. You know, we see that in the support groups. We see people that think that they're making progress and, and really the, the, the lesson in the support groups is that when you sit in an AA meeting, and you're listening to someone and they talk about how they finally figured it out and stuff. Then all the old, old timers, you all, you look at them and you, you shake your head because you're like, no, nah, that's not it. That's not the attitude of humility that we're looking for in here. What we're looking for is people that I don't know. I don't know what we're looking for. People that do the work. People that recognize that it's a process. It's a program of action. We're trying to do spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. I don't know. It's very hard to, it's very hard to know the difference between humility where you're realizing that you where you fucked up and you check yourself and you bring yourself back to center versus feeling like you figured it out. It's very, very hard to know the difference. <clears throat> so today we're doing, we're doing citrus. We're doing orange. Let's start with this recess, blood orange. I'm thirsty and I, I think this is going to be a good one. These fucking hemp and adaptogen sparkling waters. Blood orange also, like blood orange might be, you know, everyone loves grapefruit and grapefruit is delicious, but isn't blood orange kind of like, you know? Oh God, I kept thinking of sibling terms and kept bringing me back to the, to the concept of death. Isn't blood orange the fruit of death? 
Ooh, that smells very, very light and a little bit like toothpaste. Oh, ooh, that's a good sparkling water. Blood orange and hemp, because they, they're both, they both have a sort of dirty aspect. So it's like two parts dirty, but one part is how blood orange has this crisp, acidic, refreshing, cleaning, cleaning property. And the three parts are just spinning and it's like a self-cleaning, mm. It's like a dog in a car wash. Mm. It's like taking your dirty feet and running them through Jesus's clean hair. What is that thing again? It's something about feet and hands and Jesus's hair and dirt and clean. Who can remember? Season one of the Bible. Who, who remembers season one? <clears throat> yeah. I don't know. Do I have anything else to talk about? Hmm. There's so many things. So many things I'm not allowed to talk about. Yeah, it's a period of death, but maybe it's also a period of rebirth. We gotta get a little bit older now. It's time to get older. Oh man, I was thinking about how Luke is like my closest friend in a sense, but there's also that thing of that thing I keep saying about how our culture is like set up a little bit wrong where we think of life outside of work as the good part of life and people, friends outside of work as the good friends and friends at work are like they're fake and they're just your coworkers. But then work, especially in America, just balloons into this thing that takes up your entire schedule. So really, how often do you see your non-work friends? It's like, your fucking friend better be your roommate because otherwise you're never going to see that person. And... In the loneliness crisis that I like to talk about here on the podcast, we like to really give people credit for what they truly are. And Luke is just some guy on my phone that lives in a different, in New Zealand, and I've never even been to New Zealand. And, and I want to give him credit for visiting me in America multiple times and visiting me in China multiple times. And Maybe I was the one not taking the friendship serious enough. And yeah, it's a very transactional way of seeing it. But, but, um, the other people that we should give credit are, are work friends. Like I feel so close to many of my work friends. And, and then one of my, one of my work buddies, one of my managers got fired a week ago. And, it's so fucking weird because he got fired unceremoniously and it's kind of like it's kind of like this cold unfeeling corporate thing decides for you who you can be friends with 
and just says, no, you're not allowed to be friends with us anymore. You're not allowed to hang out anymore. Because really, that's what my workplace feels like. It's like we hang out. We have a lot of fun. And the point point of that is that I think we do a better job <clears throat> of making it this this warm, inviting, welcoming place for hospitality if we, within ourselves and between each other, cultivate this sense of, I've talked about this a little bit before, cultivate this sense of um, positivity and how we're actually friends. Because it's very hard to perform happy if you're deeply unhappy, you know? It's much easier to just be happy or like to just get a lot of physical movement going and to just riff and just constantly roast the fuck out of each other <laughs> and just make it a, fun, make it a, you know, just work on your stand up routine while you're at work. And, um, and it's like hanging out. And then when, I mean, it's one thing if someone quits and they want to move somewhere else and they fucking leave and they do this thing or that, but it's like when they get fired, it's like, it's like a weird, you're giving the, you're giving a weird fucking institution the power to decide who is and isn't your friend. It's, it's like, <clears throat> it's like you get a letter from Joe Biden that your best friend's not your best friend anymore. Yeah, I was talking to that. Yeah, it's, I don't know. And on that depressing note, let's do another water. So this is the Bitter Housewife, Bitters and Soda. I already did, I can't even remember which one I did already, but maybe it was aromatic. Um, this one is orange. Non-alcoholic bitters already mixed in. The Bitter Housewife. I fucking love this brand. Oh, orange. Orange bitters. A bitterly honest beverage, bright orange balanced with bitter herb herbs, a touch of hops, and zero sweet. A sparkling complex bitter like you. A zero alcohol sparkling aperitif. Oh, wow. That's bitter. That's more bitter than the last one. I think, I mean, I like this less than the last one because this is a slightly too bitter for me. But it is cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Earl Grey tea leaves. That's what it is. It's bergamot. There's bergamot and there's... Yeah, that sort of astringent teeness. Like, ooh. You know, like some really, like, slightly too oversteeped tea. This is, like, bitter. <laughs> and it, like, coats the inside of your mouth with this, like, bitterness that almost tastes like that stuff you put on your fingernails to make yourself not bite your nails. Just pure bitter, whatever that is. Yeah, they dropped some of that in here. Cardamom, quassia, allspice, hops, gum arabic, organic orange oil. Orange oil. Can you make oil out of anything? I was fucking in the bathroom two weeks ago and I'm like, 
I was taking a shower and I put my towel on. This is in Javi's bathroom. Javi has the shower. So I put my towel on the counter and I go in the shower. And when I come out, I realize that I've knocked over a tiny glass vial with the towel and it was full of oregano oil. <laughs> Such a hippie thing. And so there's oregano oil on everything. And oregano smells like pizza so much, first of all. And it's like, Javi, what are you doing with oregano oil in the bathroom? Like, I don't know what oregano oil is. I assume it's an essential oil. Dude, hippies get so many things. Hippies have so many things. They have so much culture. Whatever you got, the hippies got something else. So yeah, does, does Javi put oregano oil in his beautiful, dark, handsome curls and make it smell like pizza? Does he rub oregano oil on his face? I don't know. I actually asked him in a text. I was like, bro, I'm sorry I spilled all your oregano oil everywhere. I'll get you a new one. And then I didn't. And I asked him, like, what do you use it for? And he didn't tell me, so it might be private. It might be private. You know? Hmm. All right. Um, Jesus, I'm forgetting. I'm, I'm in such a state of grief that I... I also really don't like this outfit. I'm just... God, what is this? This is a tough week. This is not a good episode. This is a bad episode of the pod, and that's okay, because we'll, after, after a period of death, there must be a period of birth. Isn't that how, isn't that how reproduction works? The recess one, I give it a nine. No, I give it a ten. It's fucking delicious, dude. I give it a nine. The bitters and soda orange. It's grown. It's sexy. It's nice. It's well made. It's slightly too bitter for me. So it's a 5.5 out of 10. It's just not my flavor. I still love you guys, Bitter Housewife, but we're, we're going to get to the next flavor and it's going to be awesome. Third one here. Sprig. Cannot believe I still have these. Let's check if this is expired. Oh, yep. Yeah, totally expired. July 6th, 2021. So this expired eight months ago because these people sent me free samples like years ago. <laughs> and I've been reviewing these for years now because they sent me so many flavors. <laughs> and like, I didn't like them. I don't like them, so I don't rush to do them. So it takes me forever to do them. And here, this one is just called Citrus. It's also, they're super confusing. There's like Citrus Zero Sugar and... Yeah, they have like a bunch of different ones that are just called citrus, but with a different word or whatever. Yeah, I didn't say that right. I can't remember. I'm sorry, okay? I'm fucking sorry. And this smells, this kind of, this crispy boy that expired eight months ago, It's it smells like nothing. Yeah, see, that tastes like nothing more than, um... Artificial sweetener. Yeah, you would wish that the artificial sweetener 
as time passes that it would would mellow out like casking a whiskey and hoping that it <clears throat> draws some of the bite out of it putting it in some french oak putting it in some sherry casks for five years and then and then try it and hope that a little bit of the, the deep alcoholic bite of the whiskey is has receded but but that's not what it happens when stainless steel uh, casks is also a thing and maybe that's what a, maybe that's what a can is maybe that's what a can is so i was watching the um, there's a tv show on showtime called we need to talk about cosby it's about bill cosby and um oh, first of all hard to watch obviously hard to watch but it's such a such a nuanced and mature way of talking about it because it goes into how people are complex and how that doesn't mean that we forgive them but how it means that that really fucks up our grief it makes it harder for the victims it's like yeah i yeah i watched like two hours of it and and it's like ooh, there's a part where you're like an hour and a half into it where for 30 minutes they they kind of first they analyze a lot of things they bring up a lot of different things how he how he did all these good things like real good things and not just that he he made himself this educator icon and and pretended like he was this great guy because he did that too and then he wasn't a great guy he was evil and he raped a lot of women a lot of women probably hundreds of women um but he also did good things behind the scenes like he would he he's the first person that like broke the color line with how stuntmen like like they they show this crazy footage of how in the 40s and 50s and 60s and stuff up until the 70s whenever there was a black actor and they needed a stunt double they would just take a white guy and just literally paint him black poorly so that he had like a blackish gray color on his skin and then they would just let a white stuntman do the stunt poorly and you could like see that it's like the fake painted hand that gets thrown across the room or whatever and then Cosby was like no you you gotta get you gotta get black stuntmen and then they interview the fucking first black stunt guy and he's like yeah dude i fucking got that job because of cosby and now we have this much more like the the ripple effect of of forcing the behind the scenes people to also have some diversity and breaking this incredible lock of like racist yeah cosby did a lot of good things and he was a really really good person and then he was a really really bad person and there's just like it's a much much harder lesson to teach but it's the only lesson that's useful at all, you know? It's like, yeah. It's like growing up in Sweden, they, they taught us so much about the Holocaust and it was just so simple. And it was just about how evil those people were. And that's just not a very useful lesson. 
It's just not. It's a much more useful lesson to realize that that evil is in everyone. And that there are different ways that evil comes out. <sighs> you know? <clears throat> With Cosby, maybe he had like too much power and... Yeah, I don't know. I don't, maybe that part isn't so interesting to think about of like, why did he become evil? It's more like we are guilty as a society for, for elevating people to a certain, um, for believing that people are infallible. And then they get to weaponize that mask of infallibility and, and rape and pillage. And it's, it's hard because then you, then I'm sitting there watching this show and I'm, I'm realizing that one logical sort of next thing to think after that is that the QAnon people, this really meshes well with believe, having a QAnon way of looking at the world because the QAnon people are saying that all these powerful people that we think are so infallible that they're all rapists. And then I'm out here being like, no, Tom Hanks is not a rapist. And it's like, the truth is that I don't know. And the truth is that Tom Hanks has this incredibly wholesome, nice guy persona. And, and maybe him having that incredibly wholesome, safe, friendly persona is a tool that we're giving him that he can, if he would like to, weaponize, and he could use that to rape a bunch of women. Jimmy Savile is really has to be the biggest one, right? He was like this British guy who, um, he was a TV presenter. He was just like this vague TV character who just had all these like long-running shows, and he was a pedophile. And he would make these enormous money deals between TV networks and hospitals and build like an entire wing of a pediatric hospital. And that meant that he was allowed to just walk through there however much he wanted. And then he would just fucking, you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to say obscene things on the podcast, but he would, he would assault people. He would sexually assault children for decades and decades and decades. And then it wasn't until like a year after his death or whatever that, that, um, it just came out and, and, and he just, he just raped. I mean, it was, that was hundreds of people that came forward. And it's like, we give people these masks of, um, we, we allow people to have these public images and, and it's, yeah. It's problematic. But is the solution to not give them that? I mean, the solution definitely is to um, to always remember that everyone is human. Yeah, I mean, with the Holocaust, it's like, <sighs> it took me a long time and it took me a lot of my own thinking before I got to a thing that no one ever told me, which is like, bro, it's much more about how everyone is everyone can be evil and <clears throat> and i almost feel like in the end my take on it all is like how <clears throat> excuse me maybe everything is like an economic story 
maybe so much of it is an economic story of just like you push a people, any people into extreme poverty and famine and, and, you know, Germany lost like world war one. It was just like punished with these like crazy economic sanctions. And then they're, and then they had nothing and they were just pushed to this level of desperation. And then they, they adopted like the true genocidal evil, you know? And the lesson I draw from that is like that <clears throat> something as innocuous as economic policy might be the most important thing that we have. You know, good economic policy might be the Lord's work. Good economic policy might be how you avoid genocide more than like teaching everyone that everyone is all the same and everyone is really nice and everyone needs to be respected because it's like, eh. Like that comes natural to people. And because it comes natural to people, everyone already knows it. And I don't know. I don't know. Maybe with small kids, you have to tell them that shit. <laughs> Maybe with small kids, we have to look them in the eye and really like explain this shit. I don't know what I believe about that. Like, when it comes to kids, are we really teaching them anything? When it comes to morals, like, I get that we teach them math. We teach them how to read. And if we don't, they don't know how to read. But when it comes to, like, you have to treat people good, do they treat people good because you told them that when they were four? Or because you, like, took care of their psychological well-being and let them, you know, develop in a healthy way? Did anything you ever said? Yeah. I was, um, ugh, I hate talking about this, but I am, <clears throat> after getting, after communicating with a lot of literary agents and having a lot of them be like, look, you got to rewrite this part profoundly and then I'll, we'll do it. And then I sit and I think about it and I'm like, I don't want it like that. I don't know how to write it like that. I can't fix I I had literary agents that wanted me to do different things, and I just didn't know how to do the things they wanted me to do. So I'm just going to self-publish my novel now. So I made myself a little cover, and I designed it, and I, I paid $40 for a font, and I realized after buying it that this font I really like, it doesn't have an italics. So all the italics words... I had to buy an, a separate font and I had to pay 20 more dollars for another font that looks the same but is italics. So in this document, in this like 300 page document, I've had to program it so that all the times when italics showed up, it brings in this font and all the times when it's not italics, when it's regular, it brings in this other font and I do it all nice and I do all the indentations and it's like fucking awesome. And so... I got a copy. It's a proof copy. It hasn't been published yet, but I just sent myself one printed proof copy to look and make sure that the indentations are right and that the text size is good and everything. And now it made me, I had all these different plans for how I was going to do this, but I think I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to read through the book ones and pick up 
on everything at the same time. I'm going to fix all the indentations, all the stylistic stuff. I'm also going to fix all the typos and I'm going to rewrite certain parts. And then I'm going to be done with it and I'm going to publish it and it's going to be out there and it's going to be nice. Um, what I was going to say is there's this big part in the beginning that I had to rewrite now and that I've rewritten it every time I read it. I have to rewrite it because it's so hard to explain. But it's about how I truly believe that Swedish parents do it a little bit different. I truly believe that Swedish parents moralize less. Like my parents never, like my mom never told me anything of how I should do things. And when I say never, I don't mean never, never. I mean so rarely that every single time it happened, I was taken aback. Every time she told me a, di a direct piece of advice of what I should be doing in a specific situation, I was like, you never say things like that. That's like, that's how I felt about it. <clears throat> Like there was one time, hmm, it's a weird fucked up thing, but, but when I was like 14, I had, I had this girlfriend and, and then I, I, I kind of had a party at my house and we even had a little bit of alcohol and my mom was at the house and she allowed all of it and, and it felt pretty safe, uh, cause we were just kind of at the house and, and I was probably like 16, we were kind of at the house and nothing too debaucherous was going on. Um, but there was this other girl and she like was a little bit into me and her leg touched my leg. And, and then I like put her legs on my legs and we were sitting on the patio and everyone's like drinking and hanging out and her legs were on my legs because my girlfriend was a fucking huge nerd and went to bed at like when the sun went down or some shit. She went to bed at like 10 PM and then the party just kept going. So my girlfriend is like upstairs sleeping in my bed. And then there's this other girl and she's got her legs on my legs. And I'm 16 and, and I just had this attitude like I was a nerd, I was a loser. So I just thought that like, if any girl shows you any attention, you have to try to go for it and you have to try to make it happen. And then, you know, if I can skip ahead to that part first, it's like, I kind of made out with that other girl and then, oh, I'm actually conflating two different stories here. The point is that when the girl found out that I, that I had sort of made out with someone else, her feelings were hurt and I understood, I understood that we shouldn't act like that. And then I didn't act like that again. And that's a fake narrative that I've been telling myself. And I never realized until this very moment that there's actually two events that it, it took two. Oh God. I had the nerd girlfriend. And then this girl put her legs on my legs and we made out. And then I actually made that second girl, my girlfriend, and I broke up with the first one. And then that girl was my girlfriend for a while. And then while that girlfriend, she was my girlfriend for years. And then two years into it or something, we were, had this big new year's party and my girlfriend wasn't there, but my friend and his girlfriend was there. And the, my friend was always telling me how his girlfriend had a crush on me. This is such a like, it's like really like I'm, 
this this story feels like really really insufferable backdoor bragging like all these girls are so into me but it's more like these are the three times throughout my entire teens that any girl ever was into me okay it's more like that <laughs> so then i made out with this third girl the even though i had this girlfriend already and then I made out with this guy's girlfriend in front of him. And then much later, we're all hanging out and just walking down the street. And the guy just like tells my girlfriend that I made out with his girlfriend. And my girlfriend tries to not react real big. And she's just like walking and we're just walking down the street. And there's like seven or eight of us and we're just like a little teenager gang. And then later she's like, you're a fucking piece of shit and that's when I that's when the lesson was learned a lesson is learned but the damage is irreversible <clears throat> dude what was I saying about that yeah what I was saying about it is the first time I had a nerd girlfriend my mom let me have a party at the house and um, this other girl puts her legs on my legs and then you know, hours later, you know, things are, people are moving around. Hour later, we're like upstairs and it's fucking weird. And I'm going to tell you this and it's fucking weird, but we were in the hallway sitting on the floor. And I think we were even just laying down on the floor, just on our backs next to each other. And maybe I was like holding her and maybe we were making out a little bit and stuff and then my mom comes out of her bedroom and she's going to go to the bathroom. She like steps over us and she's like, hi. And my mom goes to the bathroom and then she goes back into her bedroom. So my mom like saw, my mom obviously knew that I had a girlfriend. And then my mom like saw me make up with this other girl. And then the day after my mom talked to me about it, it was like one of the few times my mom like gave me something that could be called advice. And she was like, you don't want to get a reputation. That's what she said. That's, that's how she formatted the advice. I feel like that's like a really, um, profound, uh, building block in my psychology. So I feel like I must have told that story multiple times on the podcast before because it's so essential. <laughs> it's so essential of a building block, but. So excuse me if I've told that story before, but so <clears throat> in my novel, I was rereading my novel and it's like, I have all this part, this big part about Swedish parenting. And I really believe that Swedish parents, because I have like, I, the way people are, the way people describe their own parents and stuff here, it's like, it's like the parents told them what to do all the time. Yeah. My mom did tell me to go to school though. She did want me to be on time for school but maybe that's that's a sort of that's a sort of practical pragmatic like not pragmatic but secular non-philosophical piece of advice that that she'll give she'll be like it's 7 a.m you have to fucking wake up you gotta be at school that's as far as her advice is gonna go and then she'll yell at me every 30 seconds that i have to get out of bed And that didn't work, and I didn't get out of bed, and I got super rebellious about it. And 
We've talked about it later, and she apologized and was like, I didn't handle you correctly. I shouldn't have yelled at you every 30 seconds about getting out of bed. It didn't produce the result I wanted. And then I apologized because I feel like she did a great fucking job. She was so nice, and she let me grow into my own person. And, you know. Yeah. Hmm. Parenting. Something to think about. I was over at Ice Boy Plumbing's house yesterday, and he just gave birth. They, he, not him, but his wife Steph just had him. They had their second kid, and they gave birth at the house, and they just did it in a bathtub, and it's a beautiful thing. And I saw the kid for the first time yesterday, and I got to hold the baby, and it's terrifying. It's absolutely, absolutely. just scary just completely scary yeah I don't know it's a scary world out there alright I'm sorry this wasn't a good episode of the podcast like you know I told you up front I'm sorry. I love you guys and thank you for listening anyway. 